Well, I'm under orders to make this rather brief. And so uh, I'm going to do away with a bit of the commentary and uh, just present the information that I have. So I'm going to let the, uh, going to let others do my talking for me. As you'll see, and you'll just have to make out of what I say the sense of it all. My name is Father William Jenkins, and I'm the pastor of St. Teresa of the Child Jesus Church uh, near here in Parma, Ohio. I'm also the principal of a traditional Catholic school in Cincinnati. Now, I am a traditional Catholic priest. What this means is that I am what all Catholic priests were until just a few decades ago. I do what all traditional Catholic priests of the Latin Rite, the Roman Rite, did until just a few decades ago. The uh, problem is that because that is what I do, because I offer the traditional Latin Mass and administer the traditional Roman Catholic sacraments, that I am not a priest in good standing. And the question is, what has happened to change that? that those priests who do exactly what priests used to do in fact, what the Pope used to do, and what the Cardinals and the Bishops all used to do, all of a sudden they are not in good standing. As a matter of fact, they are held to be, in some cases, schismatics. And held up as examples of enemies of the Church. How could this happen? Well, of course, the centerpiece of the reforms, so-called, that came out since Vatican II is the New Mass. When the new Mass first came out, until this day, it uh, has been known by the name of uh, the New Order of Mass, the Novus Ordo Mise. And those words, Novus Ordo, are very striking. And priests who first heard them uh, so many years ago when the new Mass first came out, was imposed in 1969, uh, might have been surprised at the use of those words, Novus Ordo. You see, the Church refers to her, uh, the ceremonies that she uses in offering Mass as rites of Mass. And the Church knows of different rites of Mass. But it's one thing to talk about a different rite of Mass, it's another thing to talk about a new order of Mass, because the words new order mean a complete and radical change. Not just a superficial change or a reform, but a total inversion or transformation. That's the significance of the words new order or novus ordo. And in fact, the new order of mass was just that. It was a new order of mass, a total transformation, not only in the language that was used in the mass, but the ideas that were behind the mass changed radically, drastically. And there were certain indications that this radical change was going to take place. For example, in 1967, this uh, new mass was first unveiled before the Catholic people knew it was happening. It was unveiled in the Vatican, in the, uh, the um, Sistine Chapel. Some of you have gone to Rome. As tourists have gone through the Sistine Chapel and seen the magnificent paintings of Michelangelo on the ceilings of that chapel. Well, it was in that Sistine Chapel that the Novus Ordo Mise, the new order of Mass, was first unveiled. And it was unveiled to about 250 bishops. 
and they were asked for their opinion of this new order of mass, and the overwhelming response of the bishops was negative. They voted against it. Uh, the vast majority, single single group of those who voted, voted Pochet Juxtamoto, which means they had grave reservations about it. They were not totally against the idea, but they had grave reservations. That was tantamount to a negative vote. Now, the church also had, had indications that some re revolution was coming in the liturgy because there were many changes that had crept in uh, since the Second Vatican Council until 1969. But also, it came out that advising the men who wrote the new mass were six Protestant ministers. Truly an unprecedented event in the history of the church that six Protestant ministers who do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and repudiate absolutely the sacrificial character of the Mass were called in not only to observe, but now Cardinal William Baum, who was a bishop in Washington, D.C. for a while, is now a cardinal of Rome, he said that these six Protestant advisors actually did advise the Church on how to rewrite her Mass, and how the Mass, the Catholic Mass, should be, should be performed. So there were plenty of indications that there was going to be a radical change in the church's way of worship. And then, of course, when the new mass finally did come out, uh, it was critiqued very severely by the, the oldest of the cardinals in the church, Cardinal Ottaviani, who at that time was the dean of the College of Cardinals. He was the senior cardinal of the whole church. And he had been head of the Holy Office, which is the congregation directly under the Pope, which is responsible for the integrity of the faith. Cardinal Ottaviani said that the new Mass teems with manifest errors against the purity of the Catholic religion, and it has no intention whatsoever of standing for the Catholic faith as pronounced by the Council of Trent, to which the Catholic conscience is bound forever. Cardinal Ottaviani prophesied that the new Mass would cause great rejoicing in those who are enemies of the Church, and it would cause, in those who love the faith, a terrible crisis of conscience. Those words were prophetic. This is a new order that has been introduced. It is a new ecumenical order, such that the fact is, if you were to stand outside the steps of a new order church, I mean a church that says that new order of mass, and you were to poll the people who came out of that church after their liturgies, and ask them what they believe about the, the Pope, what they believe about the Holy Eucharist, what they believe about the Mass, what they believe about the sacrament of baptism, the penance, or any of the essential things of the faith, you would get widely divergent answers. You would get a whole array of theories. And yet, oddly enough, supposedly, these people, not having the same faith, not believing the same thing, even about essential things of the faith, they supposedly belong to the same church. They can worship at the same liturgy, but they don't believe the same thing. And that's a fact. And you can do that. If you want to prove me wrong, go ahead and try it. See how far you get taking that poll. You would find the same thing in the seminary. And the question is, why, why has this happened? Well, this is exactly the point of the new order. See, the new order 
is designed to break down dogmatic belief, the holding to anything as though it were absolutely true, the holding to anything as a supernatural truth which cannot change. The new order is designed to break down any concept of one true faith. And even in our conservative, so-called conservative Catholics today, the notion of one true faith established by Jesus Christ to which all men are bound in conscience to adhere, that idea is very foreign to me, almost repugnant to me because of the new order, the ecumenical novus order, which teaches there are many ways to God, and they are all more or less good. Now we have, following closely on the heels of this novus ordo misse, the novus ordo seculorum. If you look on your one dollar bills in your pocket, the Federal Reserve notes, you'll find the statement around the pyramid with the all-seeing eye, Novus Ordo Seclorum, which means literally the new order of the agents or of the world. And this new world order has become a topic of widespread conversation. It is not just individuals who are talking about this in secret lodges around the world. It is presidents of nations. There are presidents of nations who are openly speaking about this as the desired of the ages, this new world order, and speaking that we are on the verge of establishing this new world And uh, you would only need to refer to a speech given by President Bush one year ago today before a joint session of Congress. This is when the country was facing the military action against Iraq. And in his address to the joint session of Congress last year on this date, President Bush says, so tonight I want to talk to you about what is at stake, what we must do together to defend civilized values around the world and maintain our economic strength at home. A new partnership of nations has begun. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward a historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, east and west, north and south, can prosper and live in peace. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace. While a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor, today, that new world is struggling to be born. A world quite different from the one we've known. The president went on to say, and concluded his address with these stirring words, we are now in sight of a United Nations that performs as envisioned by its founders. 
Once again, Americans have stepped forward to share a tearful goodbye with their families before leaving for a strange and distant shore. At this very moment, they serve together with Arabs, Europeans, Asians, and Africans in defense of principle and the dream of a new world order. That is why they sweat and toil in the sand and the heat and the sun. Thank you, good night, and God bless America. That is why the American servicemen toiled in the sand and the heat and the sun. In defense of principle and the dream of a new world order. And so, it is a worthy question to ask us, what exactly is this new world order? What were the men fighting for over there? Well, you know, President Bush was right when he said that a hundred generations had come and gone looking for a new world order. At least he was right to the extent that the new world order, as an expression and as an idea, is nothing new. It's been around for a long, long time. In fact, President Bush himself was merely echoing the words of another president, president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who one year before him addressed our American students at Stanford University in California. And President Gorbachev told the assembled thousands who were there to hear him speak that we must put aside old hostilities and work for the establishment of a new world order. That's the expression he used. Now, uh, I just discovered today that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was not the first public figure to call for the establishment of a new world order. 1979, on October 12th, another, another president of a country established, uh, called for a new world order. 1979, his name was Fidel Castro. He called for a new world order based on cooperation of nations to end injustice and inequity in the world, to establish an order of peace in the world. But the idea of the new world order goes far, far back beyond these men. They merely inherited this idea, and they merely claimed that they are going to be the ones who are going to bring about its foundation in the world. Actually, the idea of a new world order took rise in the secret societies of the Freemasons in Europe. And I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from a Jesuit priest who lived in the first half of this century. His name is probably familiar to many of you, just as the name of Father Fahey is familiar to many of you. Uh, Reverend E. Cahill, Jesuit who was a professor of church history and social, uh, social science in Italy, I'm sorry, Ireland, uh, published a work called Freemasonry and the Anti-Christian Movement. But I had uh, quite a few citations from this work, but I'm only going to read you uh, a mere handful of those, perhaps two or three of them, because I would like to show you what this priest was writing in the first part of this century. In fact, um, actually, just about the turn of the century, the latter half of the, of the first part of this century, around the time of the, of the Second World War. Father Cahill made the point that the idea of a world-governing body, which would preside over a new world order, would be realized uh, by the League of Nations, and that this idea was actually born in the secret societies of the Freemasons, the Grand Orient of France. And Father Cahill refers to a work by a man named Michel, who wrote 
a book entitled The, the Dictatorship of Freemasonry Over France. And this was published back in 1924 in Paris. And in his work, Michelle talked about the program of Masonry, and he actually cites from some of their own works. Uh, one of them entitled The Wishes or the Intentions of the Grand Lodge of France, published in 1923. And this is what he quotes from that source. An admirable aspiration towards an ideal of altruism and pacifism is carrying the brethren of most of our lodges to set their hopes on the complete and absolute realization of that organism for the liberation of modern society, the League of Nations. Now this is what he cites from the Grand Orient, the Grand Lodge of France. The idea of a League of Nations, which would be a form of supranational authority over the nations of the world, was very dear to their hearts, and they pledged themselves to work for this. Remember, this was just on the heels of World War II, World War I, rather, and the Treaty of Versailles. And he cites the Convention of the Grand Orient in 1923. Uh, and he cites this from them. It is a part of the duty of universal Freemasonry to give its whole support to the League of Nations, so that the latter should no longer need to be subject to the interested influence of the governments. And he quotes from the work of a Catholic priest, by the name of Monsignor Joanne, who wrote in 1917 a work entitled The 400th Anniversary of Luther and the 200th Anniversary of the of Freemasonry. And he talks about a a convention of Freemasonry that was held for the purposes of forming the Charter of the League of Nations, just upon the heels of the end of World War I. Now what he says is that the Freemasons met in Paris on January 14 and 15, 1917. He says it was a meeting of the Masonic representatives from the Allied powers, France, England, Italy, and he said that this conference decided to convoke a second conference in June of that same year, 1917. It was to be a Congress of Freemasons of the Allied and Neutral Powers. And the object of the Congress, as declared by the Freemasonic representatives, was this. Now remember, this was 1917. To prepare the way for the United States of Europe to set up a supranational authority whose purpose will be to settle the disputes between nations. Freemasonry will be the agent of propaganda in favor of this conception of universal peace and happiness, which will be the League of Nations. And when that convention was actually held on June 28th of 1917, it was held under the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of France. And the constitutions of what was to become the League of Nations were voted upon. They were almost identical with those that were afterwards adopted after the Treaty of Versailles. And two months later, the Grand Orient issued this statement. 
The General Assembly of the Grand Orient of France invites its members to a vigorous and incessant campaign in favor of general disarmament and the setting up of an international tribunal with the necessary sanctions for the maintenance of peace. And I'll give you my final citation from a source called The Transactions of the Congress of the French Grand Lodge, five years later, in 1922. There were passing resolutions in favor of enlarging the powers of the League of Nations at this time, so as to make it a supranational government. That means a government that would govern the governments of the world, that would be in charge of all of the governments, the individual national governments of the world. In other words, a one-world government. The principal task before the League of Nations, the Grand Orient said, consists in the organization of peace, the creation of a European spirit, and of a patriotism of the League of Nations, in a word, the formation of the United States of Europe, or rather the Federation of the World. This Federation of the Nations implies the institution of a superstate, which will be supranational, invested with executive, legislative, and judiciary powers. This international authority ought to have the sanction of an army and a police force. And so what they called for there was clearly the establishment of a one-world government that would have the power to enforce its decisions on the nations of the world. Now I'm going to read you a citation that uh, is taken from a speech that was given in our own time to the National Armed Forces of Italy. In fact, uh, an elite garrison, the, the Roman garrison, that was meeting in a place called Cecaniola, Italy, on April 2nd, 1989, not that long ago. They, they were being addressed by a world leader. This world leader told them that in order to avoid the risks of being overcome by national or selfish interests, something of which history provides ample evidence, the Second Vatican Council pronounced, promoted, and advocated a worldwide authority founded on the consent of peoples and provided with sufficient means to ensure that justice and truth will be respected. In this seemingly idealistic yet realistic perspective, it is obvious that national armed forces would need to be transformed in order to support the international solidarity which the Church advocates. This transformation would take the form of a progressive reduction of armaments and armies. A world authority endowed with the necessary military and police powers to enforce its decisions, such that national military forces would have to be progressively disarmed and even disbanded in favor of an international police force. 
And supposedly, this was advocated by the Second Vatican Council. Unthinkable. And what is even more unthinkable is that these are the words of John Paul II, that he spoke these words. He addressed these words to the armed forces of Italy, calling for an international police force to enforce the decisions of an international world authority. Now, could this be so? Could it be so that Vatican II really called for the establishment of a world authority, which, in other words, is simply a world government? The Freemason said it should have all three essential powers of government, the power of the executive to enforce decisions, the legislative power to enact laws that would bind under penalty of sanctions, and the judicial power to judge governments of the world to determine when they are or are not in violation of its laws. Well, as unthinkable as it might be, yes, that's exactly the case. That is exactly the case. And we don't even have to wait until the end of the Second Vatican Council to see this called for. It was called for by Paul VI, explicitly. Paul VI called for the establishment of this world authority. And he called for it while he was addressing the United Nations itself. You see, Vatican II ended on December 8th, 1965. Uh, three months before that, on October 4th, 1965, Paul VI was addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations. And he had some very interesting remarks to make, and I would like to quote some of them for you without a great deal of comment, some but not a great deal. First of all, uh, John Paul II conveyed to the second, to the uh, General Assembly of the United Nations, the greetings of the entire Second Vatican Council. Actually, what he said was, we give you the cordial personal homage of himself and the entire Vatican Council. And he went on to say something that I found rather ominous because of the apocalyptic prophecy that relate to the coming of the Antichrist. Now, you don't have to accept what I'm saying as though I were prophesying anything of the kind, but it just struck me this way. We know that one of the conditions that must be fulfilled before the Antichrist comes into the world is that the gospel must be preached throughout the world. And Paul VI, toward the beginning of his address to the United Nations, made this point that in standing before this assembly, he was preaching the gospel to the whole world because the members of the United Nations represent all the nations of earth and all the peoples and all of the creatures or cultures of the world. He calls it the, he says, you here represent all peoples. And we finally, have the opportunity after all of these centuries to address the whole world through you. Uh, Paul VI went on to call the United Nations the obligatory path of modern civilization and of world peace. He says the United Nations marks a stage in the development of mankind from which there can be no retreat. 
he says that they have to work toward a world community. And then he says something that I also found rather startling. He actually said to the members of the United Nations, I'll read it to you. You grant recognition of the highest ethical and juridical value to each single sovereign national community, guaranteeing it an honored international citizenship. This in itself is a great service to the cause of humanity, namely, to define clearly and to honor the national subjects of the world community, and to classify them in a juridical condition, worthy thereby of being recognized and respected by all, and from which there may derive an orderly and subtle system of international life. He's saying here, in case you haven't caught it, I'd be glad to give you copies of this or make them and send them to you if you want to verify this with your own eyes. So the United Nations grants the dignity of national existence. The United Nations gives honor to the national subjects of the world community and classifies them in a juridical condition. That means it gives them legal status in the world. That because of the recognition of the United Nations, they become worthy of being recognized and respected. Now, of course, our understanding is that the nations of the world have that in their own mind. They don't have to receive the right to exist or legal existence from the United Nations. At least, they have not yet needed this approval of the United Nations to exist legally. Paul VI went on to say, we would almost say that your chief characteristic is a reflection in the temporal field of what our Catholic Church aspires to be in the spiritual field. Unique and universal. What the Catholic Church aspires to be, the United Nations already is, in the temporal field, in the ideological construction of mankind, there is, on the natural level, nothing superior to this. Your vocation is to make brothers not only of some, but of all peoples, a difficult undertaking indeed. But this is your most noble undertaking. And then he asks this question. Is there anyone who does not see the necessity of coming thus progressively to the establishment of a world authority able to act efficaciously on the juridical level and the political level. He says the United Nations exists for the education of mankind. He says that, that he hopes that the authority of the institution, that is the United Nations, grows and increases. You proclaim here the fundamental rights and duties of man, his dignity, his freedom, and above all, his religious freedom. We feel that you thus interpret the highest sphere of human wisdom. 
And we might add, its sacred character. And he closes by talking about a new concept of man. The hour has struck for our conversion. For our conversion, our personal transformation, for interior renewal. We must get used to thinking of man in a new way. And in a new way also of man's life in common. With a new manner too of conceiving the paths of history and the destiny of the world. Now when a Roman pontiff calls for the establishment of a world authority, because the world authority, which he wishes to see set up, to be what the Catholic Church only tries to be, only wants to be, only aspires to be spiritually, that is unique and universal. It is no wonder that those who are paying attention are scandalized and shocked. But three months later, Paul VI did promulgate documents of Vatican II which expressed the very same ideas, even more explicitly. And I, I quote from the final document approved by Vatican II. It was called Gaudium et Spes. It is known as the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. It was the final document approved by the Council. Two documents were approved on December 7th, 1965. The first of them was Dignitatis Humanae Personae on the dignity of the human person with regard to liberty of worship, freedom of religion. And the second and last of the Council's documents to be approved was this, Gaudium et Spes on the Church in the Modern World, and this is what that document says. The circumstances of life today have undergone such profound changes on the social and cultural level that one is entitled to speak of a new age of human history. A more universal form of culture is gradually taking shape, and through it the unity of mankind is being fostered and expressed. We must place before our eyes the unification of the world and the duty imposed on us to build up a better world in truth and justice. We are witnessing then the birth of a new humanism. Now listen to these words. A new humanism where man is defined before all else by his responsibility to his brothers and at the court of history. Now, can you imagine the church, Christ, teaching that man should be defined before all else according to his responsibility to his fellow men and before the court of history? Catholic Church always taught that God defined man that man's duties to his creator defined man. This statement could have been produced by any of the lodges of the Grand Orient of France, by any Scottish Rite Lodge of Masonry. Man 
is to be defined by his responsibility to his brothers out of the court of history. But is the Vatican Council actually calling for this? Does it actually want the followers, its followers, to pursue this, to work for this? It certainly does. Number 82 of this document says, it is our clear duty to spare no effort in order to work for the moment, when all war will be completely outlawed by international agreement. This goal, of course, requires the establishment of a universally acknowledged public authority, vested with the effective power to ensure security for all. So it is to be armed, to be able to enforce its decisions. Christians should willingly and wholeheartedly support the establishment of an international order. Already existing international and regional organizations certainly deserve well the human race. They represent the first attempts at laying the foundations on an international level for a community of all men. Now, of course, you and I, as most other people in the world, we long for peace. We long for justice in the world. But we know, as Catholics, that this peace and justice can come only through Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, through hope in him, through love of him. And that these can be established only by His grace. That they cannot be the work of human endeavor. That they cannot be the work of a secular world authority armed with a police force to, to compel nations to obey it. We know, based upon what we've been told, that the Antichrist will rule over such. He will come working such signs and wonders to deceive the whole world, even the chosen souls of God, unless God preserve them with a special grace. And so the call for this secular world authority, even proposing a secular world institution, 